Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is going to be our, uh, I guess you could say our sequel, the first time we have did that, where we did a second show uh, in the classic Spotlight series. On This one will be on Edgar Allan Poe. All right. Um, I had to move around the uh, writing award time, uh, so that's going to be done more in early of November. I put out the schedule already, so I think you should be able to see that. Every so often I have to change it. Not very often, but... Sometimes you just have some scheduling conflicts, and this is the best way to go about it. All right, I'm really excited as we're about the eve of Halloween on, on a particularly rough year for everybody on all kinds of fronts here. So it be fun to talk about this. Now, one of the things I did, uh, and it, it just happened naturally with, with the first uh, Edgar Allan Poe um, show, which was episode number 25 last year. I think it was April of last year, actually, um, was I did... It was really more about, not just about him and some of his writing, but also some of the things that was happening to him in terms of, you know, external things, the diseases and people dying and people coming after him and, you know, folks uh, trying to haunt him after he's dead by you know, saying horrible things about him. And, you know, it's really about, in many ways, an assault on his genius. You know, it was like, like the jealousy of conspiracy of something. You know, and really a lot of the episode was about that because, you know, he had a, a, a very uh, uh, difficult and, and you can say tragic life, died, uh, you, you know, young, at, you know, at the age of uh, 40, but um, on, on, a, on a street in, in Baltimore, you know, drunk, it's amazing, freezing to death from exposure, not exactly a fitting end to one of America's greatest writers, but nevertheless, that's what happened. So I, I said to myself, you know, I know there's more to him and to what's going on about Edgar Allan Poe that we could do another show, but, you know, it's taken this long to, to get there. And, I, and I'm and i not always going to do this with every writer. There's some that, you know, I've said what I had to say, and that's it. Especially because, you know, I purposely call these shows, you know, Thoughts On. So this way it allows me to pick and choose what I think is interesting to make certain points. And, you know, just to get the, 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 the reader... Or in this case, the listener, you know, interested. And that's it. I'm not there to do an entire biography because, you know, I don't have six hours for one subject or something. And this is a podcast. I mean, uh, after an hour, it's hard to keep people's attention. And we've gone an hour and a half and sometimes even two hours. So it's not an easy thing to do. So you really can't go that far on, on many of these folks. But there's definitely a lot that can more that can be said about Edgar Allan Poe. So w- let's get into it. Now, on this episode, and I don't mean to be... Uh, you know, uh, a Debbie Downer over here on this one, okay? But in many instances uh, for Edgar Allan Poe in this particular episode, you're going to see more about the things that he did to hurt himself. And I don't mean that in some kind of suicidal way like we normally meet it in the modern way. I mean it in having, I don't know, next to no people skills or not even caring about having them. The things that he brought onto himself negatively because of his ill temperament. And of course because he didn't know how to drink. The man uh, for, from what we know. Uh, in many instances. And we'll talk about that on the show. Uh, could literally be drunk after one, one drink. So he obviously had uh, an extremely low tolerance for alcohol. He might have had a, even a condition uh, medically for this sort of thing. But he wasn't a man that really can handle it. And uh, he went through a number of episodes because of this. It helped build up. Um, a reputation for him that um, some later on realized wasn't true. Other times, it's his enemies and the jealous people involved, they used those real examples to make him into a monster that he wasn't. But, uh, you know, you'll find out in this in this show, particularly in this episode, um, he, he sure gave them plenty of ammunition. 
He sure did made it real easy to do this. Now, let me wrong. It's because someone makes it easy to slander you. It doesn't mean that you should be slandered. I'm just saying it and just in, in the most factual ways I can. Edgar Allan Poe made it real easy to, to, to mess with you because he just didn't care. He just was cut off from so many different things. It's amazing that he lived as long as he did without someone punching him out every other day. I mean, really. So I, it's incredible. And this is one of my writing idols. And, and But, you know, like they say, you get close to the people that you love in writing, uh, you're going to find all kinds of stuff that you don't really care for. Because, you know, people are real uh, beyond the writing. And uh, life, life can be very, uh, you know, complicated. You know, I think... Uh, uh, what is it, Simone uh, de Beauvais? She said, uh, life is messy. That was the feminist woman that wrote everything down, have a big structured feminist idea, and then wind up going with some guy that's domineering her, and in the end, she didn't live very feminist like she wrote. Her defense, life was messy. Okay, I got that. So that's what our, um, our heroes can be, very messy. <laughs> so we all understand that. You know, in fact, when I do that wartime, uh, you know, writing from the wartime, uh, it, it, you'll you'll find lots of cases uh, too. Very interesting. Now, here we go. I want to make a funny correction to the other episode. Now, and if, if you don't remember it, you can always go back to it. It's one of the wonderful things of podcasters because I've built a, a catalog, a archive, you know, library. We can call it whatever you want to call it. Okay, they're there. They're free. You can listen to them anytime you want. So you can go back to listen to this if you want. But I'll. Give you some refreshers on it. No problem. I just don't want to rehash the entire episode. Because, you know, we may save a room for this episode. Alright? But one of the things I had left about was... You saw a lot of these Durga types. Those, you know, early type of photographs back in his day. Um, where, he, you know, he looked kind of rough and tumble. He looked kind of like, you know, pissed off. He definitely looked like, you know, he was not a happy fellow. Uh, sometimes, as much as he can seem neat... He definitely still seemed disheveled. I don't know if he just didn't know how to take care of himself right or he just didn't give a crap because in some instances we learned on this show there was a lot of things he didn't give a crap about. It's just true. Um, I never realized until I started some additional research for this show that in two instances he took some earlier uh, durotypes. Uh, these are in 1840. Uh, what is it, 1845, uh, from um, Samuel Stilwell Osgood. He took one of them, okay? And I'm shocked, I just truly am, I'm shocked to see how normal he looked. He didn't look angry. He did not look disheveled. He had a very nice outfit on. This is still in the days when, you know, his stepfather was throwing him some pesos before he cut him off and, and hated his guts, all right? So I'm sure that helped a bit. Uh, also, he didn't have that weird mustache, and he just looked like somebody that, I mean, he looked like he can get a date, okay? I mean, th that's the only way I could put it, you know? And I'm not, again, I'm not a guy that can judge other guys and who's looks to be handsome or not. I, I don't know, and I don't really care. I like girls, all right? But I can easily say, compared to all the other photographs we've seen, I could see how this would be the look for him. But guess what? This isn't his classic look. He has a stereotypical look from all the other photos that people kept pushing. The publishers, the people that loved him, the people that hated him. They all pushed that stuff. They just thought it would fit with his macabre sense, with his horror writing and blah, blah, blah. And I think sometimes when people do that, in many ways, it, it can be a disservice. And I'm, I'm shocked to see this. And uh, so I retracted back that the guy looked like he couldn't get a date. Because in these photographs, he looked like he can get a whole lot more than a date. Uh, another another fellow here who was an artist and a friend of his, okay, by the name of J.A. McDougall in 1846, a year later, he put out a, another one of these Dargis hypes that would look fabulous. It's incredible. Uh, he had a really, really nice outfit on and everything. Again, no mustache, looked like he was shaven. Looked like, I don't know, like he was ready for a photograph, so to speak. He was ready to go. I don't know if those are better mental times for him, so to speak. But I just thought it'd be interesting to, to mention that. Because after I mention that, everything goes down here on this show from then. It's kind of rough for this guy. Alright? Alright, so here we go. I wanted to read this from one of his poems. Because I think it's a good setting in many ways for the show. 
and quite frankly for <laughs> for his, for his mood on on so many things it, it just sort of fits it it really does I, I mean it even fits the the later um the later um dog types that we have of him it, it just fits it that it's that dour serious spooky somber you know um I wouldn't say spiritual as much as I would just say, you know, eerie or even gothic. Here we go. And this is from Alone, Edgar Allan Poe. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passion from a common spring. From the same source I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. All I loved, I loved alone. So it really, it really to me frames a lot of uh, of his mental, you know, uh, capabilities and, and maybe even mental instability in some cases. Um, there's no doubt about it uh, that um, Edgar Allan Poe suffered. Uh, from uh, various uh, forms of mental illness. There's just simply no doubt about it. It's not really about certain things he wrote about. Spooky this, horror that, no. I mean, because plenty of people who have written this before, uh, Robert Blocker in, in, in the 20th century wrote Psycho. He wasn't mentally ill, and he's talking about some really demented person over there who really is probably the first uh, serious uh, written introduction of a serial killer, you know? Uh, nothing meant to know about that guy. He just found stuff out, did the research, did the book, you know. But um, we'll see as we talk about him and other people talk about him, which is really a big focus of the show. You'll you'll see the signs of this. You'll see uh, in plenty of instances where um, sometimes he didn't care how he said things, how he reacted, how he talked to other folks, and other times you have to wonder what actual control he had at certain moments. I'm not going to give people excuses. I tell that people all the time. I deal with my own, you know, uh, versions of depression uh, from military service. So I'm not one to, to go around casting judgments. But at the same point, you know, we have to also have some personal responsibility for our conduct. And we can't go off and, you know, I, I drank because I shot three people in the war. Or I punched uh, this girl in the face because I'm suffering from bipolar. I mean, there's things where we have to be able to figure out how to handle and take responsibility for mental illness or not. So that's why I say that. And it's the same thing with uh, Edgar Allan Poe. There are instances where you can clearly sell, you can clearly tell that he didn't have that control. And in others, you can definitely tell where he just didn't care. So, and you can actually make some, some, some judgments on that at least. All right. So here we go. All right. So, he had a very, very poor temperament at Edgar Allan Poe. It really served him badly because you have to understand, yes, he was poor. Yeah, he was always fighting for money. Yeah, people were dropping dead all around him. He might have been even saying to himself, when the hell am I going to get consumption, which was what they used to call tuberculosis back in the day, a five-year you know, uh, uh, terror of bleeding out of your lungs until one day you fill up with fluid and die. You know, uh, I remember somebody saying... Um, that that's supposed to be a romantic death or something, but I don't. I think it was Lord Byron that said that. Nothing romantic about that, and nor anything funny. I'm sure he's just trying to be clever, but it is Lord Byron, and you know, if he was alive right now, I'd say, "Wow, what a wonderful writer you are!" And at the same time, I'm gonna have to smack you in the head. Pretty much, that's what I would have to do with that guy. All right. Um. So in many instances, the temperament. It just did not do him favors. It did not get him jobs at times. It often got him out of jobs. It often got him away from people that even admired him. Who said behind the scenes, behind his back, even in the correspondence to him, or possibly the, the correspondence in, in many cases to other people, that the guy is brilliant. He is one of the writers of our time. But I can't stand to be around him. But he's a cuckoo bird. And I didn't use that word. I just used that because it sounds funny on the on the show. Or in many instances, they simply used ill-tempered, uh, uh, lacking of temperament. Uh, uh, simply somebody that is not 
uh, what, what do they what do they say one time? Oh yeah, somebody that was not versed in sobriety. <laughs> I tell you, writers can be cruel against each other. But in many instances, the people who are saying that they are not the jealous ones. They are not the enemies of later days. They are not the people that hated him. These were his friends saying that. I mean, when when people are saying that about you and they love you and they respect you, damn, you have a problem. You really do. Because if they were saying that and those were the people that liked him, God, I can just imagine what the hell the people were saying that didn't like this guy. It's definitely uh, no joke over here. One of the things he hated was once he put together his first collection, which was the Tales of Grotesque and Aberesque, he didn't like that people kept calling it um, scary stories of the dramatic type. He just didn't think they were dramatic at all, you know, from, from Germany. Because at the time when he was writing these kind of stories, even though they were unique, they were Edgar Allan Poe. That was him. That was his style. It was the Brothers Grimm and a lot of those kind of stories that came out of Germany that get later translated to England and brought to America that people remembered. So it's sort of a, I don't know, if it's not a, a, a memory shorthand, just a literary shorthand. And, and, and believe it or not, in many ways, uh, they were trying to pay him some sort of compliment because they couldn't place what he was doing. It was out of the category of what the American writers were doing. So he just didn't catch that. The man was not too great at times of sometimes getting uh, any kind of a compliment. He did from the really established people, and we'll talk about that, and, and took that humbly, believe it or not. And, and humble is not a word when you attribute to the Poe because you're going to learn that in many cases he was not very humble. He might have lived humble. He might have wore humble suits. You know what I mean? He might have been sounding humble around the girls that he's trying to court or, or talk to or, or convince to finance this or to do that. But uh, generally, uh, Edgar Allan Poe was not humble. Edgar Allan Poe was what I call the reverse Dolly, where Dolly was talking about, hey, I know I'm a genius. But Dolly was not somebody who was pissing people off. Dolly had an incredible amount of people skills. Dolly was very good politically. He was good networking. People liked him. So because they liked him, they didn't think surrealism was that weird. Imagine if he was a complete weirdo. They probably would have thought he was nuts and this like, I don't know, maybe that would have hurt his work. You never know. Poe, on the other hand, he's a reverse Dolly. He also knows he's a genius. And he has no problem telling you that. Putting it in your face. Knocking you over the head with it. Writing reviews uh, against some of the greatest writers of his time. Saying they suck. <laughs> and if you ever looked at the review. Uh, which is publicly available. And if you ever checked out the book. Which you know many of them are. Uh, a perfect example would be. Uh, uh, James Fenmore Cooper's. Uh, Last of the Mohicans. I mean he said that the book sucked. <laughs> he really did. He, he said it was boring. Uh, you know, I read the book. It's not my style, and, and not even I'm not even interested in the subject matter. But I didn't think it sucked at all. I thought, I thought it was pretty damn interesting. And, and, and quite frankly, for for a, a, a white fellow, you know, to have a, a more advanced view of, of uh, you know Aboriginal Indians back then, I mean, that in itself was probably a, a literary triumph. But you know, Edgar Allan Poe was like, means nothing, and wrote against it. Did that a lot. Did, again, another thing that did not help himself. If his temperament did not help himself in the social settings with people that could have helped him down the line, he definitely screwed himself over a hundred times by just writing some of the roughest reviews ever. In fact, they used to call him the Tomahawk Man. That was his nickname because of he was such a, a nasty critic. And he got that nickname because of that book, the, the, the Last of the Mohicans. You know, a lot of tomahawks in that book. And that's where they gave him that from. So that stuck with him for a long time. And, and he certainly uh, earned that. I mean, he didn't earn that whole dramatic thing. I understand that they were trying to be a compliment. Too bad he wasn't a little bit lighthearted about it. But I tell you, if there was anything about Edgar Allan Poe, light would not be it <laughs> on anything. Wasn't lighthearted, wasn't light mooded, didn't write light. Didn't think light, didn't talk light. <laughs> he, he was the anti-light. I don't know if dark is always going to fit him, but it's definitely in, the, in that area. Definitely the darker gray anyway. Okay? Uh, so he might not have earned that, but he definitely earned the Tomahawk Man. He just unfortunately did. Now, he was friends with a lot of wonderful writers 
who didn't hate him. They put up with certain things. And one of the ones I found was unusual was Washington Irving. Here's a man of real even keel in terms of his mood, in terms of his yeah, his uh, establishment and, and, you know, um, his work ethic. And he, he was a great writer. He, he wrote, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the Sleepy Howl. And uh, um, that's told by Halloween every time. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a really great story. I love it. One of the, one of the more fabulous of the, of the short stories. And they corresponded a great deal, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Washington Irving. And he had told Washington Irving about that he wrote a great story that he thought was going to do well for him called The Fall of the House of Usher. It's one of the few times, other than The Raven, and we'll talk about that, uh, where he actually mentioned something about his writing in the title and everything. So it gives more evidence to what later on happened to him. And we talk about that in the first episode where, you know, people saying, ah, he's an opium addict, he's a drug addict, he's a devil worshiper, he's a weirdo. If he did anything, it was by accident or under the powers of Satan or blah, blah, blah. That's what they used to say about this guy. For a long time, people were putting him down, didn't want to read him. They wouldn't even want to put him in the curriculum for schools. People were like, no, I don't know about that, he's a weirdo. You know, until they understood later on, and I don't mind mentioning it in this show, when they started studying his papers, then they realized... Wow, this kind of revision, this is not a drunk, addicted weirdo. It's not at all. This is a man that's a whole lot more sober. <laughs> he might not have the best temperament in the world. He definitely might have been a strange fellow, but uh, no. He's not some uh, lazy, drug addict, alcoholic, crazy person. He wasn't. Mentally ill, yes, but crazy, no. So he mentioned that. It was one of the first times he really did that. Um. He really, really admired Washington Irving. And Washington Irving actually put up a lot of his stuff. I mean, there's a couple of times where he said that he thought one of his stories resembled some of the ideas they talked about. And maybe he could be guilty of plagiarism, which is a serious thing to say to somebody. But Washington Irving wasn't one of those people that was, um, you know, those Fairway Johnson kind of people. He sucked with uh, Edgar Allan Poe through his entire life. So it's a great credit to Washington Irving because that's not a, lot of, not a great thing to hear from somebody who's saying they admire you one moment, the next moment they're saying you're a thief. But this is the kind of person he was, and I think that he put up with it. I think he put up with it because I think he tried to understand who um, Edgar Allan Poe was and who, who he actually was. And I just didn't think he took that seriously. He knew that, you know, underneath it all, you know, he was a, a, a grieving man, a full of complaint. Because that's really who he was. A deeply unhappy individual. I, I don't want to give it too many other romantic spins. I mean, really. I'm not trying to beat up on the guy here. But that's that's the truth. Others didn't take that very well and, and never talked to him again. So that unfortunately happens. And then in, in other instances, he never even did this at all. He interviewed Charles Dar excuse me, Charles Darling. Charles Dickens for his uh, for one of the magazines he was in. It was a great coup for him to get. And, and, and they wrote a, a, a correspondence a number of times. Charles Dickens really, really, really liked him a lot. And uh, even tried to help him in Europe to get more of his work out. But he had a hard time because there's a lot of people that, you know, they heard things or they, it scared them or they just thought he was very unusual. You know, which I always thought was very European to say that about an American because, you know, you had writers like, you know, Baudelaire and Rimbaud and yeah, people like that, that, you know, they're writing graphic sex scenes and, you know, they're, they're cheating on the spouses with, with gay lovers and they're talking about ripping down the government. <laughs> they're talking about all kinds of radical things, not believing in God and everything else. I mean, none of these things were exactly popular notions in the 1800s. Okay, and you're pissed off at an American guy because he's writing about a cat that helps uh, helps uh, 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 the police uh, uh, grab somebody who's a murderer. Yeah, yeah, he's a real, real, real devil worshiper for that. So I, I always thought that um, the uh, the European take on him was grossly unfair, and uh, how they let all those other writers get away with stuff. Well, well, they're saying this guy's a you know a stranger. You know, it it just shows you how um, prejudice and sometimes even anti-Americanism. Which, by the way, can you know still be there and to this day, you know is present and, and and it can happen in literature too. And he got a he got the, he got the short stick on that one. And and in this instance, it wasn't his fault, you know. In in sense of he just wrote the stories. I mean, he wasn't like he was corresponding with all these people and pissing them off. He only knew so many people in Europe. In fact, Edgar Allan Poe was one of the first American writers to break out in Europe and become big. 
And in many instances, the people that loved him, the people that talked about him, the people that wrote about him, never even corresponded with him, never talked to the guy at all, ever. Only a few ever really did. In fact, some of his big defenders when he died, well, people never even bothered to, to correspond with him. They just left it as it was, you know, and that was that. They were busy with their lives, doing their own stuff, but they, they greatly admired him. Uh, Charles, uh, excuse me, uh, a so-called uh, orthodontist, he, he, he wrote the Sherlock based on what this guy did. So uh, we'll do a little recap on that for everybody else that didn't listen to the first episode or just sort of jumping in on this. We're talking about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, American master. Um, he is considered the, uh, the inventor and the father of the detective story. Uh, and many uh, people now are starting to consider him one of the early uh, forerunners for the science fiction story. Uh, considered one of the master poets uh, uh, of his time, uh, one of the most important of the short fiction writers that ever lived. In some instances, like the Telltale Heart, I mean, you could probably say he might have invented flash fiction because, quite frankly, the, the style and even the 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 the, uh, the length it leads you to believe in some instances that it feels like and reads like a flash fiction piece from the 21st century. In many instances, so. We um. We have a lot to admire in, in Edgar Allan Poe uh, for his uh, what he left us, which was incredible. Uh, he was very prolific because he wrote a lot. We'll talk a little bit about some of the philosophy that came out and some of his correspondence, which was slightly different than some of the stuff he wrote in a more formal way, like the uh, you know philosophy of, of composition or, or the poetic principle. Those are his two p pieces of nonfiction work that sort of set out the Edgar Allan Poe principles of writing. But in his correspondence, he had other interesting things that I think you might find interesting as writers. And one of the things I thought was, because it never struck me that he would feel or think this way, but he had mentioned uh, to, um, who was it that he mentioned this to? Oh, yeah, he, he mentioned this to, uh, to, uh, to Washington Irving uh, that he felt that the best that a writer can do is if they're in the right moment, that they should complete whatever they're doing in the one sitting meaning that maybe that page is done and that's it, you're done with it. That's why he had poems that wasn't very long. Other than the exception of The Raven, most of his poems fit about a page. They fit that type of philosophy. He felt that that was the best way to go and not to do too much tinkering with them. A little bit and that's it. And we find when they study his work and, and produce the, uh, the analytical results, we find that that's the case. Most of his poems he was able to write in one setting with minor adjustments later on, and that's that. The only time he did anything extensively was The Raven, which, according to how you might want to interpret it, because there's a couple people who have studied this, anywhere from four to up to six revisions. I mean, I don't want to quibble and have an argument over here. You could say it was four and a half, three and a half, four and a quarter, five and a half. Who, who the hell knows? But they say between four and six revisions, they're pretty damn certain of because they have the real examples of him doing that. Uh, remember, you didn't delete stuff on the screen back then. You had to actually scribble stuff out and redo it again. So uh, it's obvious that um, maybe uh, not only is the Raven his masterwork in poet, you know, in poetry. But um, he went through many, many different um, versions of it. And so in that particular instance, I guess it didn't fit his one sitting rule. You know, he broke it and he went with it and he wound up doing something that, that's pretty, pretty darn incredible, which is great. Now, like I mentioned before, uh, to his own detriment, um, he was not humble and oftentimes he could be quite arrogant. Why? I don't know. If Sometimes people say psychology-wise, especially if you're dealing with mental illnesses, that's a way for you to uh, find your confidence by being arrogant and maybe even beating up on somebody. I don't know if there's any psychological validity to what that's been subscribed to him. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, it makes some sense on paper. In real life, I don't know. I mean, I certainly don't approve of the behavior. And when I read it and, and even hear it from his own words, it's kind of rough. It really is to, to even hear because it's like, oh, my God. 
but it also helps you remember that when you put the guy up on the pedestal, which you can do, and say he's a master, which he was and is, you're still dealing with a human being. He's taking a pee like you're taking a pee and eating your chicken like you're eating your chicken and, and, and has his moods and has people dying around him and he's still feeling things and still trying to comprehend the world, you know, through his own strange lenses. So if, if anything helps us remember that Edgar Allan Poe was a human, well, his, his uh, frailties and, and, and certainly his flaws, they, they definitely remind you. And it definitely remind me, that's for sure. Now, here's the, uh, here's the interesting thing here. So he writes uh, a, a, a Kentucky poet, uh, William Ross Wallace, somebody he was close to for a number of years, another one of those Washington Irving types that they went through a lot of listening to, of crap to him and still stuck with him. They loved what he was doing. They thought he was brilliant. They, 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 they were able to, because of just the kind of people they were, they were able to put aside some of his weirdness and just focus on Edgar Allan Poe as a human being, as, an, as a great artist. Not everybody was able to do that, but they were able to, so they credit. So he tells them, hey, I just wrote this incredible poem called The Raven, and this is what he says. The Raven is the greatest poem ever written. This is the exact words from Edgar Allan Poe. That's exactly what he said in the correspondence to that guy. It's not unusual because he said that to a couple other people too, which is pretty, uh, pretty darn amazing. It really is. Now, even though he was known for some of his really ruthless uh, criticisms, he was also very generous on the people that he felt he really had a connection to their writing. When he saw something in it that he could see in himself or, or, or even seeing something that he would admire, he was very generous. And one of the ones he was really very generous with was uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the great English uh, poet. And he wrote a review of her book, uh, Sonnets from the Portuguese, a love poem book. Um, if you don't know too much about her, she was considered one of the, one of the greatest poets of England and a very interesting woman. I, I'm going to do a show on her next year because she's just really, really fascinating as a, as a, as a woman. And uh, I like her because... Uh, Again, uh, I'm a modern guy, so I understand feminism and, and appreciate some of it. But again, I'm a guy, so um, I, I like a women that have more than one dimension. I, I, in fact, in many ways, I judge women the same way I judge men. So I don't know if that makes me strange or not, but that's how I approach stuff. I don't really have a separate standard just for women. Just because they're walking around with breasts, let's say something different. No, I, I have the same standard. I'm expecting you to have a sense of honor and character. And if you're an artist, I'm expecting you to do something interesting, whether you're a woman or not. Oh, well. So she winds up marrying Robert Browning. He's one of the, the most successful poets uh, ever out there. And they, um, they had a courtship where they exchanged 574 letters. The father, her father, hated his guts. They wound up having to eloping and get married and went from there. Okay. She writes this incredible book. Many people think it's her greatest work. He writes a review about it. An incredibly generous review. I read the review. So it's obvious to me that it's not about, you know, uh, wow, I think she's kind of hot. Because, you know, if you ever seen any of the, the photographs of uh, Elizabeth Browning, she was pretty damn cute. Sometimes women back then, I don't know where they took these pictures or where the hair was or the weird outfits they had. Sometimes I wasn't like, uh, I don't know about that. But that woman was, was pretty damn cute. So uh, I don't really think he was just really fascinated with her cuteness. I think he was really interested in her work because I found in many instances that the review, it really did fit the, the work that he was talking about. She truly was brilliant. And to his credit, he didn't care who she was gender-wise, country-wise, any other damn-wise. He just saw an artist and went after it in a positive way this time. Thank God. Okay. She, on the other hand, was kind of unusual and, and can be a bit eccentric. She grew more fond of him later. Uh, but in the beginning, he, she got to read one of the few people that, that read The Raven early on before it became a public sensation, even in England. Okay, And she says this. There is certainly a power to The Raven, but it does not appear to me the natural expression of a sane intellect. 
in whatever mood. It's not going to be the first time you're going to hear somebody say something about Edgar Allan Poe that sounds on the border that they think he's crazy, that they think he's nuts, that they think there's something warped about his intellect, that they think he's, you know, a member of another planet or, you know, denizen of uh, the underworld or some other crap. I mean, if you think about it, the Raven was like nothing you ever seen before. Just on an artistic level alone, I mean, this thing had almost every poetic device known to the English language. We got simile in there. We got metaphor. We got onomatopoeia. We got alliteration. You know, we got so many different devices running through that thing. Not to mention the, the fact that, you know, he, he's got a, a unusual spooky bird in there. He's got the whole bust of palace and the whole Greek mythology going on. I mean, everything but the kitchen sink the guy's thrown in there. And then rhyming on top of that, and not even in a boring rhyme, it's in a, a spooky, cool refrain, you know? Just quote the raven nevermore. I mean, it's, that, that dude was rock and roll with that thing, I'm telling you. If he had a soundtrack to that thing, he could have been in concert with it. Which later on, I guess in many ways, he became in concert. In fact, in many ways, uh, I don't know if, if, if the raven is the greatest poem that's ever written. And that's what, raven, that's what he said. I don't know. I really don't. I would say that in the English language, yeah, I, I put it in probably the top five easily. Whether it's number one or not, that's debatable, even by me. But um, in terms of a spoken word situation, it, it might be one of the greatest spoken word poems you can ever do. I'm telling you. Incredible. I mean, it's so incredible that if you did like a, a, a weird prank, go into a cafe, give a really good rendering or a really good rendition of The Raven, and then read your own stuff, people probably fall asleep with your stuff, no matter how good it is, because his stuff is so much farther, you know, out there. So, you know, you can't follow that. It's just that, that damn good. So, later on, she becomes more of a fan of him. Later on, she writes some correspondence about, hey, The Raven is kicking butt in England. People really love it. I think in, in a strange way, she kind of felt weird that she kind of roughed him up about The Raven and kind of called him a nut. You know, when her herself was kind of eccentric in many ways. But um, I think she made her amends. He wound up dedicating the, 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 the Raven uh, collection poetry book he did later on to her. So and she was really uh, she was really touched by that, which is, of course, you know, a great thing to uh, to see and to see and hear. Now. Here we go over here. All right. Now, again. You have many people that admire Edgar Allan Poe. Writers of incredible worth and stature. But they admire him from a distance. Sometimes they speak behind the scenes or write down things that piss him off. Because they don't care. But they still admire him. They don't let their disdain for him become a put down of his talents. Which is what other evil people did you know, later. And we'll talk about that again. I don't mind ending it that way because, you know, you can't end any show about Edgar Poe and my feelings without talking about, you know, his untimely death. Uh, another one was this one right here. Okay. James uh, Russell Lower, another, another one of his. In fact, he's in the American Romantic School of Writing. He's right up there with, uh, with uh, Washington Irving and Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. He says... And, and he wrote uh, like a like a comedy book, but everybody knew he was referring to Edgar Allan Poe. Part genius, but two-fifths sheer fudge. It was their vernacular for saying that, you know, he's full of crap. So they knew because there were so many instances where Edgar Allan Poe went off the beaten track. I mean, he wouldn't show up for job assignments because he got drunk. Remember, off of one beer? <laughs> Next thing you know, he's thrown up in a park someplace. In one instance, he, he literally uh, uh, got onto the uh, the ferry by accident, and now he's in New Jersey instead of New York. The guy literally in another state blasted out of his mind in Jersey City, walking around, don't you know where the hell he's at, saying, hey, this doesn't look like New York. Uh, no there, Edgar, because you're in New Jersey. The only time he ever went to New Jersey, by the way. And unfortunately, he had a vomit on our streets. Uh, I'm glad you were brilliant, but, you know... Go back to New York for that, okay? Please. Spoken as somebody from New Jersey. All right, but there's another one that, that acknowledged his greatness, <laughs> but 
they really didn't like him. And you just got lots of people that way that that, that, that did that. In fact, I got a, a really interesting one. And this is this is directly from, from Edgar Allan Poe, from a letter. Apparently, Edgar Allan Poe spent a lot of time, and I don't know if they've saved them all, but they have a bunch of them. And I got one right here. A lot of apology notes. You know, I, I wish he could have invented the post-it back then. He probably would have had some real money for a change, you know. But he 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 did this, and it, it's it's just a, it's just a really a, really amazing. All right, here we go. Here. All right. So basically, he gets lost. He gets drunk. So he literally writes a letter to these folks, telling them, um, "Listen, I actually, and I'm going to paraphrase this until I can. Let me see. Can I find it?" Oh, yeah, yeah, here we go. I found it. Okay, all right. So this is Edgar Allan Poe and his apology, okay? Inside the apology, you see great writing. You also see a lot of things that we could talk about. It kind of goes to not only um, his state of mind, but maybe even his character on certain things, okay? All right. So he writes his apology later to this couple he was supposed to be visiting. In many instances, I don't know if the guy was purposely self-destructive or not, but in many instances, he had friends that arranged for him to have private counsel, private talks with people of influence and even wealth. These are the kind of people that could have dropped a note for him, dropped a dime for him, dropped some damn money in his pocket or something to keep him going, and he blew it on many instances. And this is the one he blew, okay? He didn't show up at all, got drunk. Would you be kind enough to put the best possible interpretation upon my behavior while in New York? <laughs> Even though he wound up slipping into New Jersey, okay? You must have conceived a queer idea of me. But the simple truth is, William Ross Walker, that's the Kentucky poet I was telling you about, would insist upon the juleps. And I know not what I was doing or saying. So, it's not much of an interpretation on this, okay? Edgar Allan Poe is literally telling this couple, and I don't know if he's just trying to salvage himself for maybe a future meeting, which, uh, according to what I could see and, and study, it never happened. I guess they said, the hell with this guy. But he's pretty much trying to say, uh, yeah, this dude pretty much pushed the drug, this uh, drunk, uh, this uh, ju julep, which is like kind of a drink on me, and I couldn't handle it, and I'm uh, sorry about that. So, in, in, in many instances, uh, he's just asking them to excuse his behavior. He's blaming somebody else for his behavior. Why this behavior happens, I don't know. It, it's Obviously, it's a matter of interpretation, maybe even a matter of guess. Is it the self-destructive things that can happen to some people who are mentally ill? Is it the people that, I don't know, do they... Do they avoid success psychologically when, uh, you know, superficially on the surface in the mind they want it? Because every indication from his other correspondence, from his private talks with people, uh, from his constant communication with, uh, you know, his uh, ex-parents, uh, uh, writers that did like him. It was, he was trying to make money, trying to stay ahead of things, trying to become more popular. So why would he want to be a stumbling block to that when it's obvious he was? We don't really know why. I can give you guesses like I just did. I don't know why either. It just To me, sometimes when you read enough about somebody's life, you can make some decent educated guesses. Edgar Allan Poe, in this instance, is just too damn hard to figure out. It's just so contrary to all the other things he's doing. Because it's not like he's... Doing 27 self-destructive things and two cool things to get himself going. No, and this guy's doing 700 constructive things to get himself going. But the problem was is that the few handfuls of crappy things he did just damaged the hell out of him. And people talk. That's, that's human nature. And whatever governed this man's human nature, it, it certainly didn't help him in, in, in so many instances. It, it really did not. So that was a real, I guess you could say, lost opportunity for Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm sure he had many of those. Some of them probably not documented. 
but I could read literally uh, countless <laughs> letters to you. Some of them a lot smaller than that, you know, where he pretty much mentions alcohol. He doesn't even shy away from it. He comes up with an excuse, you know. Uh, sometimes he even blames his past. Some people knew about his past, especially women. Women gave him more of a, of a benefit of the doubt and were more compassionate to him than men were about the situation. You know, if the woman on that drunken episode was the, was the sole person in charge of a household, which happened back then when the husband died, the woman has a lot of money, can do lots of things. Believe it or not, she can't vote, but she can still do all kinds of interesting things, including helping a man like that. Um, she probably would have been a lot more um, receptive to that, but it was a couple, and mostly the guy read the letter and get oh, God, this guy's telling me that uh, he got drunk. That's why he never showed up, and he's blaming somebody else for it. It probably didn't go very well at all. Even though, believe it or not, <laughs> um, the incident that he's describing actually did happen. It's a, a truthful incident. When he is saying, you know, um, in truth, how do you say it? Oh, the uh, but the simple truth, that's his exact words. Uh, yeah, he is actually telling the truth about what he talked about. It's just that we don't know it's if it's the full truth or not because we just don't know would have spurred that on. Is he just having fun with a friend? Why can't he control himself? Why can't he say, Bill, you're, you're, you're awesome, man. Thank you for backing me on so many different ways. In fact, thanks for giving me this free meal so I don't have to spend a couple dollars I have left to go to the tavern to eat a meal. Because uh, Edgar Allan Poe apparently didn't know much about cooking. He just didn't know how to cook very much. He, uh, he depended on women to do that. <laughs> or, or the tavern. <laughs> which is probably not the best place for them to eat because, you know, then he drinks and screws all that up. But nevertheless, so you have to wonder about that. You you, you really do. It, it's a, it really is complex. And, 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 of course, it's definitely a heartbreaking because as much as I've told you, yeah, the guy can't seem to not get in his own way. That the guy... Cannot have a gigantic ego, but at the same point, he can go down to the groveling. I'm telling you right now, I don't care what kind of psychological problem you have. Men do not grovel unless they're looking for something or they just seriously busted. And at this, in his case, probably a little bit of both. Otherwise, uh, he's not the groveling type. But there's plenty of instances where there's evidence where he is groveling where he's apologizing, where he's telling people candidly that he's a friggin' drunk. Even though Edgar Allan Poe, for all intents and purposes, doesn't fit the drunken lifestyle. He seems to have a very low tolerance of it. To me, he reminds me of many ways of Bukowski that way, who later on, when he nearly died, in many instances, it appears, we'll learn from his biographer, but I, I really think they're going to verify my theory, is he had a long life because... He wasn't a drunk. He really stood away from a lot of alcohol. Most of that stuff was props. And whenever he did go off the wagon, you know, he got sick quick and he got over it. And that was it. But he couldn't handle very much because, you know, his body at that point was simply uh, against it. But he had built such a lifestyle around it, including his writing, that he actually promoted it. Where, on the other hand, Poe is not promoting this lifestyle. He's promoting his art. I think that he's terribly embarrassed by it and properly deeply ashamed by it. And in many instances, he might feel that it's of, of a character or even of honor to, to simply be forthright about it. But I tell you, you read it enough times with him and you're like, God, can you just lie once in a while? Because I'm just tired of reading this stuff. It's embarrassing that I'm reading it. It really is. You, you, and you feel for him in many instances because, because of that. Because you're like... This is the guy that wrote Raven, and he's over here pretty much uh, kissing the butt of a rich couple because he vomited in New Jersey. What the hell is that? But you can't get any more of a true tale. I mean, uh, I mean, we, we, we say in a respectful manner that, uh, uh, excuse me, that Rod Sterling, was in his life was itself like a Twilight Zone episode. Well, I think you could probably put... Um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe inside one of his horror damn stories because uh, in many ways he was writing his own horror story in his life. I mean, no doubt no doubt about it. And um, I'm sorry to say that between 
the behavior that scared a lot of people away, that made people angry, that put them at a distance, or made them hate him, later on came back to haunt him when he was dead. Okay? To this day, after a couple of biographies and a number of investigations, there's only really three theories that have any kind of weight about the death of Edgar Allan Poe. We know the fact he was at that tavern that night. We know that that wasn't a place that he was um, new to, okay? That's a nice way to put it. But remember, I was telling you he didn't cook, so you know he probably went there for a sandwich. It's not unusual for him. Whether every time he went to a sandwich, did that result in him being drunk? I don't really think so, mainly because he complained in correspondence, especially when he was seeking money from people, because Edgar Allan Poe did that a lot. I mean, this dude was like his own like fundraiser. Because that's what he did. If he wasn't making money from editing or writing reviews or doing the speeches or, or, or doing just the recitals of the poems, he was literally bumming it from people. And he would literally write letters about that. And he would often say stuff like, yeah, I only had enough money for a damn sandwich today and to feed my, uh, you know, my dying wife and, and her mother. And that's about it. And if you read between the lines and that kind of a complaint, it, it really meant that he had enough control to not drink in the tavern because he probably didn't have enough money to go beyond the damn sandwich. So in many instances, his control could have just been that he just didn't have the money to drink. So we don't really know if he made a lot of money later on, if that would have just totally destroyed his life. We just don't know. But it, it kind of leads me to believe that uh, in one way or the other, he might have been doomed to an early life. I like to think because he was offered a speech uh, gig to different colleges that he could have done that and maybe become even greater and, and live the longer life. But uh, I just I just don't find the hope in believing that. When I see more and more of his letters. And more and more that of the things he admits to. More and more of learning the habits that he had. That he would have survived too much more past 40 anyway. I just don't see it. Uh, I'm sorry to say that in, in my humble belief. Uh, if he didn't die in Baltimore that night, he would have died in, in Boston or another damn city maybe a year or two later under the same stupid circumstances. Now, the three theories they have is uh, he was still suffering from some kind of illness. It, it might have been what, what, what caused him to have the low tolerance of alcohol and eventually made him pass out and he, you know, he died in his own vomit. John Bottom from the drummer from Lev Zeppelin did that too, but he had 56 shots of vodka. Um, I'm really damn sure that Edgar Allan Poe only had one. <laughs> okay, so, because that's all he can handle. All right, that's one. Uh, another one is that he got drunk, someone stole his coat because, you know, that's a rough and tumble area that he was in in Boston at the time. It was, it was the winter time, it was cold. He passed the hell out and he just died from exposure. That means, you know, your temperature get lowered, you can't get up because you're, you're knocked out and you die. The last one is, it's ha it has the least amount of weight, but you have to consider it only because the timing is weird, okay? That was an election time there when he was out there. It was common for people to bring you to the poll, make you sign for somebody that was their candidate, buy you a drink or two, maybe even give you a couple bucks, and then throw you in a, in a place to, you know, go sleep it off. That could have happened to him. They might have gave him even more than he could handle. He passed out and then died for exposure. It's always a possibility. They did that a lot. It was actually not an uncommon way to die. You know? Especially since, if you ever read some of the obituaries back then, some of these people that are dying, you know, that they're talking about sometimes, it doesn't appear that they're poor or homeless. <laughs> you know, but they're dying in, in, on a damn street. So you have to wonder. Are they all having issues with their health? Are they all drunks? Or did somebody roll them, like they used to say, to do the to do the voting and then, you know, buy them something and then roll them in the alley somewhere? Some of them might have made it, <laughs> woke up and go, what the hell happened to me? And others died. So he could have been a victim of that. We just won't know. It, it's certainly, whatever it was, you know, a, certainly a, a dishonorable way to go. But I am convinced that one way or the other, he was going to be on that path, unfortunately. Now, this is the strange, if there's not anything strange about Edgar Allan Poe, and as you can tell, there's so many things. 
Uh, but I always found it the strangest of all the strange things was is that Edgar Allan Poe never really felt like he was going to die soon. He never felt that suicide was an option. He never thought that, you know, the ghosts of his past or his present were going to get him. He always thought that he could push on because, remember, in many instances, he did. I, I got to say that as many times you might say that Edgar Allan Poe had some sort of weak sensibilities or, or weak stomach for alcohol, you know, he still had a very strong constitution emotionally and psychologically, even though he was mentally ill, for some of the terrible things that was going on. I think it would have broke lesser men, you know, if every time he falls in love with a woman. And remember, he fell in love with a woman that, that adopted him. And I don't mean, you know, romantically or sexually. I just mean that he loved her like his mother, who he never got to know, because she also died. Um, and she died of consumption. And then, of course, the two women that he, you know, eventually got involved with and married uh, died. So those women were probably the only people he really loved. I'm not convinced that Edgar Allan Poe hated himself. I'm just not convinced he loved himself. But I am convinced that he knew something about love because of those women. They might have been the only real bright lights in his entire sad existence. And in many instances, you read some of the romantic poetry of Edgar Allan Poe. I know sometimes it's hard to say romantic and Edgar Allan Poe in the same damn sentence. But he is one of the romantic writers. And if you read the actual romantic ones, that some of them are quite beautiful, it's obvious, you know, that he loved the women, that he had true feelings for them. And they were not a manipulation of words. They were not trying to be clever with his genius or slick with his experience. Or just amazing with his talents. There were genuine, you know, affections going on there. And so that, amongst a few other things, certainly helped Edgar Allan Poe be a little bit more grounded for us to relate to a bit. And, and of course, to say that, you know, the man was human, no doubt about it. He was not a monster like other people made him out to be. Remember, it wasn't until decades later that people started realizing how brilliant he was and that he wasn't. A, a, a drug-addled fool or a, a drunken idiot or, or a devil worshiper or a witch lover or all the crazy things they were saying for a while. They started understanding more about what he was doing, what he was, especially when they read other of his works. They was, it was obvious. And, you know, they heard other people that allowed those voices to come through, you know. Um, Baudelaire and Ribold and, and Dickens, um, Victor Hugo, a big, big fan of his. Um, uh, of course, uh, many of the American writers, uh, like, uh, uh, Washington Irving and, and, and William, uh, Ross Wallace, uh, a minor poet, uh, but still somebody that w was known. Uh, of course, the, the, the great writers like uh, Elizabeth Browning and, and James Lowell, incredible writers over there. It was obvious when people started taking all of that into account, then they were like saying to himself, well, geez. Just like I say right now, and just like you should be able to say, when you look at the lineup, well, God, there's got to be more to somebody like this than all those rumors, because look at these people. And guess what? And I'm not trying to make fun of the guy's mental illness, but there really isn't anyone that praises this man that even had the affliction of mental illness. These are all straight, sober people. They don't think he's nuts. They think he's a genius. They think his writing's incredible. So I think in many instances, in the end, the better angels of those people were really able to salvage his um, reputation and bring him back to where he should have been all along. And thank God that they did that because that really saved somebody that could have been stuck in obscurity some way. Maybe some trivia question one day versus, you know, an established master in, in America, you know, and. I'm American, and um, I don't mind telling you that we have a lot of great writers uh, throughout the last few centuries of America and people that are admired throughout the world, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's really only a handful that were actually masters in, in all the ways that can be. When you look at Edgar Allan Poe on the poetry front, on the fiction front, on the nonfiction front, and even though I don't always agree with a lot of his criticism, it was still extremely well written. 
even on that front, he is simply a master. There's just no way around it. You don't know how hard that is to be a master of all of these forms equally. It, it just puts him really in a category by himself. And incredibly enough, he knew that. Whether that knowledge pissed him off or made him feel more alone than he normally felt, I, I couldn't tell you. But he definitely knew that uh, in many instances, you know, um, the class he entered in, he was the only student. <laughs> he was definitely in a class by himself. No, no doubt about that. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that and uh, definitely not doing another one uh, uh, for Edgar Allan Poe. God bless him. We will put that to rest. Uh, as you know, there's many more works out there if you want to check him out. Um, we're going to go on to uh, other things here in, uh, in November. Let me, let me get that so we can uh, just chat a little bit that and uh, kind of give you a, a bit of a, a highlight. I like doing that, especially since I uh, you know, now have a, you know, a bit of a schedule over here. Okay, so starting in November, all right, this is not the whole month of November. This is just most of it. I'll have a few more shows, and that'll be it for until Thanksgiving, and we wrap that up. All right, so on the 2nd of November, we got an interview with Stephen Lang. That's going to be wonderful. That's the writer of Raphael, a wonderful poem I published. Uh, we uh, nominated for Pushcat Prize in, in Poetry. Uh, a Scottish fellow doing an educational assignment in El Salvador, writing in sonnets loves Irish poetry. So if you haven't heard of an incredibly unique mixture of things, there you go. A hell of a great interview, hell of a great writer. There's going to be a lot of fun for you to, to hear that. Uh, we got, uh, I had to push this back, but we got on the 5th of November, that was writing during wartime. So I, I had to do a little bit more research. It was taking longer than I wanted, and it just didn't get to where I wanted to be at. And I just thought that um, it's better to push it and, and alter the schedule every so often than to just do something half-assed. I just don't like doing that. I talk against that sort of crap. I don't want to start doing that just because I'm on a schedule. Oh, well, I write the damn schedule. I got to change it one often. Hey, you'll understand. If you don't, write me and get mad. You won't be so different than others sometimes. <laughs> All right, the next one after that, 9th of November, would be the Classic Spotlight series. We're finally doing Octavio Paz. Uh, Mexican poet extraordinary uh, writer, um, Nobel Prize winner, really interesting fellow. My first introduction to any kind of Hispanic writer when I was growing up was Octavio Paz when we finally got a hold of one of his uh, poetry volumes that was uh, translated into English. So uh, my first recollections were his. And uh, so it's exciting to, to do a show about him. Uh, I got some folks out there in uh, Mexico and in Spain. He has a lot of a lot of followers there that they uh, asked about this, wanting to know, and I'm ready to rock and roll on that here in a couple weeks. Okay, next one uh, is going to be really a show that's close to my heart on the 13th of November called "The Female Gender in Writing." That's going to really be a lot of fun. I, without sounding like a strange individual here, I don't always find the masculinity in writing that interesting. Maybe just because I'm a masculine guy or because I'm a guy. Maybe because I'm bored with masculinity. I don't know. It doesn't mean I'm going to be changing my gender anytime soon. I'm just saying that on an artistic level, you know, I've saw her already, you know. But for some reason, maybe just because I like women or maybe because I'm fascinated with women, especially when they're creative people. But I, I just feel there's something special and different about the gender of female in, in, in writing and in, in creativity. To me, there's something there. It could be my bias. Oh, well, I'm doing a show about it. I find it interesting. I, I'm hoping that you'll do the same. Okay? Does it sound like I'm saying women are more interesting than men? Uh, yeah, I, I pretty much, I'm definitely saying that. Because that's definitely my feeling. Okay? It's really not a put down on men. But it is how I view things. So, it's we're going to have a show on that. Uh, next, after that. And it's one of those twisted ironies that we'll talk about. But the classic Spotlight series, this one's going to be on John Ashbery. Love the guy. Don't write much avant-garde. Never have. Just loved everything he did. Just liked it intellectually, artistically. One of the one of the uh, the few uh, of the modern masters. And we don't really talk enough about him. And uh, I like to definitely do that. He he. It was only been a few months ago that that he died. So. Let's talk about him and 
have a uh, have a great time doing so. And we'll we'll have a few more. I'm still shaping up for November, and then we'll go on from there. All right, folks, that was uh, episode 159, classic Spotlight series. Uh, thoughts on Edgar Allan Poe, part two. Uh, I'm going to call these uh, different things, actually. I'm going to retitle them just because uh, I can do that since I have two. So I think I'm going to call the first one um, Assault on Genius. Just to sort of mention the fact that it's about the outside forces trying to get him. And then we're going to call this one right here uh, Terror and Temperament. Just to sort of like say some of the more inside things. I think in many ways it's the bookends of Edgar Allan Poe. I hope people will hear and you know, possibly visualize the same thing. That's certainly what I was shooting for anyway. All right, folks, until next time, God bless. You have a good evening, and thank you very much for all your support. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.